A quick disclaimer about the recreations you're about to hear. In most cases, we can't know exactly what was said. Those scenes are dramatizations based on historical research. How far I'm UK and this is the ITK podcast. Diko is hurriedly clearing out his office. Every important document in all the cabinet has been stuffed into the leather suitcase he has with him. He knows every second from this moment is important. Is that everything? He asks his secretary, who responds with an affirming head nod. He hurries out of the building to his Mercedes 300 SE, waiting right outside his office building. After fastening his seatbelt, he heads towards the Seme border crossing with the Republic of Togo. He hands his passport to the immigration's officer at the border and waits for what seems like an eternity before his passport is handed back. Once in Togo, Diko heads straight to the international airport at Lome. He then hops on the next flight headed towards London. Still refusing to let his guard down, he waits anxiously for the plane to take off from the airport. He is able to finally breathe a sigh of relief as he watches the city of Lume get smaller and smaller as his flight heads for Stansted Airport. At Dudan Barracks in Lagos, Muhammadu Buhari is meeting with one of his security aides. Is Diko in custody? He asks in the aide's direction. No, sir. We don't see him for your office. We go in house for Ikoi. We still don't see him there. What do you mean you can't find him? I want every soldier in Lagos on high alert and on the lookout for him. We will find Diko even if it means I have to scatter every nook and cranny in Lagos. Yes, sir. The aide salutes before he is dismissed to go carry out the president's orders. The early 80s was a great time to be a corrupt Nigerian politician. Corruption was so rampant during the Shehu Shagare administration that it's estimated that 16 billion and that's billion with a B of oil revenues between 1979 and 1983 were embezzled. $16 billion in 1983 would be worth $42 billion today. Anarchy was the order of the day. Government ministry buildings would randomly burn down right before they would be audited. President Shagari claimed to have pleaded with his ministers to stop embezzling money. He said he eventually gave up on trying to curb this insanity and simply prayed on it. And yes, that was a direct quote from a former leader of Nigeria. He tucked his tail between his legs and hoped his cabinet ministers would stop embezzling public funds. I tell you, Nothing stoked my patriotic pride more than reading that. Now, at that moment in time, no one stood out more as a poster boy of corruption than Umaru Diko himself, who then served as the Minister of Transportation. His greed was legendary and said to have rivaled that of Nigeria's finance minister from the First Republic, Sir Festus Okotie Ebo. 
Diko was also in charge of a presidential task force directed at alleviating food shortages by distributing imported rice. His task force instead hoarded the rice to drive up its price on the market before selling it to Nigerians at the artificially raised price. Despite all his antics, he was untouchable because he was Shegu Shagari's brother-in-law, a position he used fully to his advantage by making sure it was only his counsel Shagari considered on important matters of state. His brazen corruption, in addition to his abrasive attitude, made him very disliked among army officers. Diko was well aware of how disliked he was within the military and knew that in the event of a coup, he would be a major target. So he decided to stay ahead of this by having the top military leaders in the country under surveillance. A very unwise decision as these officers were politicized and had experience planning military coups. Those being watched included Major General Ibrahim Babangida and Major General Muhammadu Buhari. Buhari even complained to Shagari how angry he was that Diko was monitoring him. In typical fashion, Shagari refused to take any measures. Diko didn't realize he had woken a viper. Shagari won re-election in 1983 in an election that was marred by wide-scale electoral fraud. This period of instability gave the military opportunity to strike. On New Year's Day 1984, Nigerians awoke to a radio address by an unknown military officer named Brigadier Sani Abacha, who informed the nation that the Shagari administration had been toppled by the military in a coup led by Major General Muhammadu Buhari. Diko, knowing he was at the top of Buhari's list of corrupt politicians, fled to London. London at the time was the go-to spot for corrupt politicians on the run from the government. Other fugitives included Adisa Kinloye, the head of the MPM party, Joseph Wires, the former Senate president, and Richard Akinjide, the former attorney general and minister of justice. If you thought Diko would lay low in London, well, you thought wrong. He became an outspoken critic of the Buhari regime. Diko was public enemy number one to the Nigerian administration. For Buhari, who in his first address to the Nigerian nation promised to bring an end to corruption in Nigeria, catching Diko would not only be a political victory, it would send a message to fugitive politicians that their days were numbered. To do all this though, they needed to first know where Diko was and then have him extradited to face the music. Well, enter the Israelis and the Mossad. Israel's relationship with Nigeria at the time was very complex. Nigeria officially ended diplomatic relations with Israel due to pressure from the Organization for African Unity in 1973. Reason for this was Israel's cozy relationship with the apartheid regime in South Africa. The Israelis not only supplied the regime with weapons, but also intelligence used in suppressing the anti-apartheid movement. Officially, diplomatic relations between both countries may have ceased, but trade between them still carried on. 
Nigeria was supplying more than 50% of Israel's crude oil needs in exchange for military hardware. For the Israelis at the time, maintaining warm ties with Nigeria was very important. When Buhari took over, the Israelis were very much looking for a way to get on the good side of the new regime. The golden opportunity fell into their laps when they were approached by some officers within the regime seeking help with locating Diko. Nahum Admoni, the director of the Mossad, the Israeli equivalent of the CIA and MI6, flew into Lagos under a Canadian passport to meet with Buhari. Admoni made Buhari an offer that included finding Diko and physically handing him over to Nigerian authorities for prosecution. The deal may have been very attractive to Buhari, but he pushed for three more concessions from Admoni. One, he also wanted the location of all the offshore accounts that Diko had squirreled public funds into. Two, he wanted the Mossad to work in cooperation with the Nigerian security organization. And finally, he wanted the Israelis to take no public credit for capturing Diko. He figured that the Nigerian government taking full credit for that would scare every fugitive and force them to the negotiating table. Admoni agreed to the terms and immediately put the formidable resources of the Mossad to this. He disseminated Diko's description and image to every undercover Mossad operative in Europe. No stone was left unturned as Diko's favorite restaurants and hotels were placed under surveillance. Operatives working in hospitals were put on notice in the event he came in for plastic surgery. Those working as tailors and shoemakers were giving Diko's precise measurements to help identify him. Admoni knew London was a favorite destination for Nigerian politicians due to the absence of a language barrier and their penchant for the city's high-profile hotspots. Mohamed Yusufu was a Nigerian security organization officer posted undercover in London as a diplomat to head the Nigerian side of the operation. Using undercover agents within the Nigerian London community, the search was quickly narrowed to West London, a popular location for Nigerians with embezzled state funds to buy mansions. This all paid off when, on June 30, 1984, a man fitting Diko's description was identified in London's Baywater neighborhood. He was tailed by Mossad agents back to a house on 49 Porchester Terrace. Diko's house was placed under surveillance while a plan to capture him was put together. It's July 5th and Diko is headed out of his residence to an interview with Elizabeth Ohene, the editor of the Talking Drum magazine. He notices a yellow van parked on the street right in front of his house. Weird, but he thinks nothing of it and walks past the van. Suddenly, the doors of the van burst open. Two men hop out of the van and grab Diko. Before Diko could open his mouth to yell, a handkerchief is stuffed into his mouth. Diko has his legs and arms restrained before he is laid on the ground of the van as it speeds away from his address. Ow! What was that? He wonders to himself as he feels a sharp prick, first in his right shoulder and then again in his thigh. 
barely able to process what's happening, Diko suddenly feels sleepy and in a few seconds drifts out of consciousness. The plot to kidnap Diko was put together very quickly after Diko was identified on June 30th. Dr. Levi Ari Shapiro, a reserve army major and director of the intensive care unit at the Hasharon Hospital in Tel Aviv, was recruited to procure the drug used to sedate Diko. Felix Abathal and Alexander Barak, the Mossad agents assigned to the operation, flew into London on the 2nd of July. Major Yusufu, the Nigerian intelligence officer, hired the bright yellow van used to transport Diko. Am I the only one that finds it odd that he hired a yellow van for a kidnap operation? I mean, one would think that opting for a less conspicuous color would be more appropriate. On July 4th, a Nigerian Airways 707 cargo plane flew in from Lagos to Stansted Airport. The British authorities were notified that the plane was sent to pick up diplomatic luggage from the Nigerian High Commission in Lagos. While Diko was being picked up, the pilot informed the airport authorities that he had a departure time of 3 p.m. and that he would be carrying documentation from the Nigerian Ministry of External Affairs. This documentation would have granted the plane's cargo diplomatic immunity and prevented British authorities from performing a search. Dr. Shapiro and the unconscious Diko were loaded into a crate that would be labeled as diplomatic luggage. Dr. Shapiro, an anesthesiologist, was in the crate to monitor and make sure Diko did not die during the six-hour flight back to Lagos. Abithal and Barak hopped into a second crate. To the kidnap squad, it seemed like everything was going to plan. Unbeknownst to them, their plan had two major hitches. The first was Elizabeth Hayes, Diko's private secretary, who witnessed the kidnap through a window. She swiftly dialed 999 and alerted the authorities. Given Diko's profile as the former minister of a foreign government, the call was quickly escalated and the police were there within minutes. Shortly followed by Scotland Yard's anti-terrorism squad. Notices were also quickly sent to the British Foreign Office and the Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher. All customs officers at seaports and airports were put on high alert and told to be more stringent with all Nigerian-bound vessels. The second hitch was Group Captain Bamfa, former head of the Nigerian Air Force and current CEO of Nigerian Airways. Bamfa was charged with meeting with Yusufu and Dr. Shapiro on the morning of the kidnap, providing them with the appropriate diplomatic documentation. Finally, following them to the airport and supervising the loading of the two crates into the plane. The day of the kidnap though, Bamfa got cold feet and didn't show up. At Stansted Airport, Charles Morrow is having a routine day. Well, until 3pm when handling agents came through saying they weren't going to manifest the cargo going on Nigerian Airways 707 headed for Lagos. Morrow, never having handled diplomatic cargo, goes downstairs to talk with the officials. The Nigerian diplomat he meets 
is a man named Mr. Okone Death. Moro asks Edet what the contents of the crates were, and Edet cagely responds that it's sensitive diplomatic documents. Moro decides to go back to the office to see what the official procedure for dealing with diplomatic cargo was. While in the office, a colleague comes in to alert everybody to an all-points bulletin from the Scotland Yard saying a Nigerian was kidnapped and that he could be smuggled out of the country. Moro thinks to himself, could it? No. He glances out of the window to look at the cargo on the tarmac awaiting clearance. Each crate he estimated using Mr. Edet as a frame of reference seemed to be 1.2 meters in height, 1.2 meters in length, and 1.5 meters wide, large enough to fit an adult. Moro knew immediately he had a problem on his hands. Since diplomatic luggage are protected from custom searches by the Vienna Convention, he makes a call to the British Foreign Office. British Foreign Office. This is Agent Charles Morrow calling in from Stansted Airport. Yes, go ahead. I have a Nigerian Airways 707 aircraft headed for Lagos, refusing to manifest two crates they claim to be containing diplomatic cargo. The crates are large enough to contain an adult, and I suspect it may contain the kidnapped Nigerian. Well, for luggage to qualify as diplomatic cargo, it must first be labelled diplomatic cargo, and it must be accompanied by an accredited courier with the appropriate documentation. Does it meet all these requirements? Because if it does, the Vienna Convention prevents us from searching it. Well, the man accompanying the crates does have a diplomatic passport, but he does not seem to have the right documents for the cargo. That's our loophole to perform a search. However, it has to be by the book. The courier has to be there to watch you perform the search. Let's hope you're right. If you aren't, we will be getting a very angry phone call from the Nigerian Minister of External Affairs asking why we are searching diplomatic cargo. I hope so too, Mum. He hangs up the phone and heads back down to the tarmac to perform the search. When he alerts Mr. Edet that he was going to have to search the crates due to the APB out and him not having the appropriate documents, Edet immediately starts pacing and is adamant he doesn't have the legal authority to perform the search. Morrow ignores him and using his crowbar opens up the first crate. Diko's unconscious body and Dr. Shapiro startle Morrow. So do Barak and Abithal in the next one. Morrow alerts Scotland Yard and in a few minutes, the entire runway is full of police cars and an ambulance. Diko is taken to the Hertfordshire and Essex Hospital and regains consciousness the next day. He was unconscious for 36 hours and unaware of the drama that had happened at the airport. The diplomatic fallout from the situation was severe as kidnapping an individual from another country is a very hostile act. Yusufu, Shapiro, Barak and Abithal were charged and received prison sentences for their involvement. They served their sentences and were deported on release. Diplomatic relations between the UK and Nigeria ceased for two years before they were resumed. The Israeli and Nigerian governments denied any involvement in the plot. 
Diko returned back to Nigeria in the 90s, where he got back into politics. He was appointed to head the National Disciplinary Committee for the PDP Party in 2013, a role he served for a few months before he passed away in July 2014 at the age of 77. Diko not facing justice ever is the most infuriating part of this situation. One would think that a man alleged to have embezzled $1 billion between 1979 and 1983 would have been charged. Sadly, it's a very common situation in Nigerian politics. A lot of politicians who had their assets seized in the 70s and 60s for alleged corruption had those assets returned back to them reinforcing the fact that as long as you stay on the good side of the administration in power, you can get away with anything. I personally found the Diko affair to be very conflicting. On one hand, I do applaud Buhari for wanting to make an example of Diko's corruption and trying to do so while getting around extradition that sometimes doesn't work. However, it's hard to justify snatching a person from one country to another to face trial. A government regime could use it to justify kidnapping critics to come face sham trials at home. A very relevant and also recent example is the alleged kidnap of Paul Rusesa Bagina. Paul Rusesa Bagina was the hotel manager of the Mill Colinas Hotel in Kigali during the 1984 Rwanda genocide. He was able to save over a thousand lives during this period, a story that inspired the movie Hotel Rwanda. Rusesa Bagina has since been living in Belgium and has been a very outspoken critic of Paul Kagame's current administration. Last August, while he was on a trip in Dubai, he disappeared. The next time he showed up was when he was paraded on Rwandan TV in handcuffs. His family and human rights organizations have accused the Rwandan government of kidnapping him while, unsurprisingly, the Rwandan government denies this and alleges that Rusesa Bagina simply flew into Rwanda of his own accord. Rusesa Bagina has been held in custody since then without access to a lawyer or his family. That's it for this week's episode. I'm UK and this has been the ITK Podcast. Mm-hmm.